All right, 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter 2. Good morning, it's good to see you. I've been waiting to preach for a while. Um, a little over a week ago, I was standing on Mars Hill where Paul preached in Athens, and I've been waiting to preach since I stood there. I got real emotional and read Acts 17, and I was like, man, I can't wait to get back. But anyway, so, so I'm here. So today, Peter's going to continue to expose false teachers, and he's going to unzip a little bit more of the 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 wolf's clothing that's there that is hiding, or the sheep's clothing, excuse me, the sheep's clothing to hide the wolf that is uh, underneath um, there. And so, so we're going to continue in this theme of looking at uh, false teaching, why this is such an important thing in the church. One of the, one of the realities of what we've seen in the last 50, 60 years, uh, particularly in America, is we've seen a number of cults that have risen that use Christian language and talk about Jesus. And every one of those who have started these have come out of an evangelical background like you and I are in a setting this morning. So let me just share a few of those. Uh, Sun Mung Moon, who was the founder of the Unification Church, he was raised in a Reformed Presbyterian church. Kim Jones, uh, founder of the People's Temple, was raised in a Nazarene church, and at one time in his life, he was the pastor of an interdenominational church before he founded the movement called the Disciples of Christ Church. Um, Texas Christian University, TCU in Fort Worth, is connected to that. Very extreme liberalism. Uh, do not, uh, as a matter of fact, if you go in the Bible classes at TCU, they will teach you that the Bible, um, you can't really trust it as the reliable word of God, but um, they are called te- Texas Christian University. Moses David, uh, who founded the Children of God, was born to evangelical parents and uh, grew up in in pastor church in what's called the Missionary um, Alliance Church. Uh, Victor Paul Wareville, um, who was the founder of uh, the group called The Way, was a pastor at one point in time of a Reformed church and also a professor of the New Testament at a leading Christian university here in America. Mary Baker Eddy, who founded... Uh, Christian science, which is pretty much continually in the news in our culture day and time today. She was raised in um, a home that was very much like ours, a very orthodox, conservative Christian home. And also uh, Charles Taze Russell, who founded uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, was also raised in a home that was very much like uh, what we are trying to do here as families um, at the church. And so so Peter's going to deal today in this section of chapter 2, with people who have been a part of the church but have stepped away from the church. So one time there was an active faith, um, there was an authentic faith, or at least the appearance of the authentic faith. Um, I should really, let me, let, me, let me back up a few sentences. So Peter's going to deal with those who at one point in time appeared to be authentic teachers and people in the faith, but they're not. Uh, he's, gonna, he's going to call them today accursed children. Uh, as God's children, we are blessed. We are not cursed. And so these are people who at one point in time appear to have an authentic faith, were active in the church, but had stepped away from uh, truth of Scripture and had uh, walked away from that. And so Peter's going to um, deal with that. So a couple more things, by the way, of introduction this morning. Uh, three weeks ago, uh, we talked about the second part of chapter 2, and I showed some clips, if you were here on that Sunday morning, of false teaching that is going on in America today and a number of different places and, and platforms and churches and, and ministries. And so we, we looked at some of those and looked at um, some important things. And we looked at men who were out there uh, teaching things, uh, who were pastors of churches. But I wanted to say something about women um, as well. There are, uh, in the evangelical church today, in the blogosphere, in the internet land, in uh, conference land, uh, many women teachers as well uh, who teach and espouse things that we need to have um, uh, a careful ear in what they say. People like Rachel Hollis and Jen Hatmaker, and there are others, and so I'm not trying to uh, single them out, but I just want to point out realities of things. We need to listen always to everything that is spoken in the name of Jesus and have a discerning ear. And again, I'll remind you, that includes me. You listen with an authentic doctrinal, biblical, theological perspective to the things that I say because what we want to do is we want to make sure that we are in line with what God has for us. And so we don't want to lift up anything 
and speak anything that is not in line with that. So why is, why is there all this emphasis in the New Testament about false teaching? Well, the reason it is is because it was a great reality in the first century church. About 30 years after Jesus ascended, was resurrected and ascended and was seated at the right hand of the Father and began this great ministry of intercession and the Holy Spirit was sent to indwell those who were believers. In that period of 30 years, um, in the beginning there's a purity that was happening with the church, but then there began to be uh, just tremendous different false teaching. Now we don't know exactly what kind of false teaching Peter is dealing with here. We know that it is connected to the second coming of Jesus because of the context that we read in chapter 3 where he's going to talk about and deal with that there was a group of people that were saying that the second coming had already come and it brought a lot about a lot of confusion and so Peter is dealing with that and so we're not fully for sure every aspect of that but it was a prominent theme and we're going to see today and really next week as well Peter's going to get more intense in his perspective of false teachers today. He's going to be very descriptive um, in regard to his, his, his words of them. And then next week he's going to get, and, and I said this when the serf, first service, I don't know if this is a real word, he's going to get graphicer next week, okay? And as he talks about in detail and describes what false teachers are like and, and, and what that brings about. And so the reason I think Peter is so passionate about it is I think it stems all the way back to the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has been resurrected. Peter has denied the Lord three times. He's been broken, of, broken over his denial. Um, he knows Jesus is alive. Jesus has appeared to them. He's told them, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. And so they go fishing. Jesus shows up. Peter gets out of the boat, he comes to shore, and Jesus has breakfast there, and they sit down, and Peter and Jesus have a conversation that is driven by Jesus. And three times Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus says, well, then you feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Then you tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Then you take care of my sheep. And I think the reason there's an intensity in Second Peter is because Peter took serious what, what was going on in that conversation on the Sea of Galilee that day. He was to carry the mantle of what it looked like to shepherd people in the truth. In our world today, I think our generation of believers, particularly in the West, we live uh, in the most popular time of false teaching and false doctrine in the history of the world. And, and it's not that there wasn't that stuff back then, but I, the reason we live, in, I think, in the most difficult time is because of media. We are able to be exposed to so many more false teaching through the news outlets, uh, Internet, churches, podcasts, whatever the case may be. There's just more out there now for us to, to be exposed to, and so that's why it's so critical for us. And I also want to just one more thing before we get into the text this morning. When you read the emphasis of the New Testament, and particularly when you read the letters in the epistles, every second letter like 2 Corinthians and 2 Thessalonians and, and 2 Timothy, every one of the second letters are, were written to address issues that are arisen in these churches. And Paul was writing back, or Peter is writing back to these churches to help correct what was kind of taking place since the first letter happened. And so, so prevalent then, prevalent throughout church history, prevalent in our day and time today. And when you read the whole of the, the New Testament, the emphasis on all of the letters that were written to these individual churches, the focus is not, hey church, make sure you get your architecture together when you build buildings. That's not their emphasis. There's no emphasis in these letters say, hey, there's going to come a day we're going to have lighting in the church and windows and things. And so make sure all of that's together and, and all that kind of stuff. There's no emphasis in the writing in the New Testament. Hey, make sure that your music is suitable to everybody. And, and you know, you've got to have an organ. Or if you don't have an organ, it's got to be a band or this. And you've got to make sure and just all, all of this different emphasis that's there. Make sure that you've got parking spaces for your guests. Paul didn't write about that. They didn't have cars, but he didn't write about that. There was no writing about, hey, make sure you've got a good marketing plan to get the word out about your church. But the New Testament emphasis has, is one thing, and what is it? Get your teaching right. 
You've got to get your teaching right. Because wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. False understanding of God le- leads to false response to God. And so this passionate heart of Peter as a shepherd is saying, writing to these people, let me give you some things you need to be aware of in regard to false teaching. So let's get into the text now. Second Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to kind of put um, some of this together so we can be reminded it's been three weeks since we've been in the letter. So Second Timothy chapter 2 verse 4, and we're going to go all the way down to verse 16, but our emphasis today will be 12 through 16. So chapter 2 is all about false teaching, and this is the second part of that, verse 4, chapter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man lived among them day after day, and he was tormented. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, speaking of false teachers he is, They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, here's our text today, but these false teachers, these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing, They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. All right, first thing this morning. Y'all ready? Come on, y'all ready? That's not good. Y'all ready? Okay, all right. First thing this morning is Peter's further description of false teachers is he says this, they are irrational and they are instinctive. They are irrational and it's distinctive. And that's the first part of verse 12. He says, but these, and he's speaking of false teachers, they are like irrational animals. They are creatures of instinct, not reason. They are born to be caught and destroyed. Now, let me talk about this just for a moment. Many of us have pets, and we love our pets. They're awesome. Who doesn't want a pet beta or a goldfish? Or a rat, or a snake, or some people own horses. And animals have some intelligence. But here's the reality about animals. We are different from them. Is your dog going to heaven? I don't know. Don't count on it. Take it up with God. Don't take it up with me. Maybe your dog will. I think if any animals go, it would be dogs. Definitely not cats. But personal opinion, just a personal opinion of mine. Here's the reality about animals. No business from McDonald's to Smoothie King to Bell's to Ross are hiring animals today to work. Why? Because animals don't reason. They're instinctive. Can they learn things? Yeah. They dog can learn how to roll over. It can sit. Why? Because you get a treat after that act. So they're instinctive, they learn. There's something God's put in them that causes them to be instinctive. But they're not reasoning. They're not intelligent like human beings can, who can invent things and build things. Now, God has given some animals the ability to build stuff, but they don't build skyscrapers. Nobody is asking them to build a parking garage, a multi-level parking garage. We're not asking any animals to do that. So there's a difference, but, but watch what Peter is doing here. 
He is saying this. He's saying those who preach and teach things outside of what has been written under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, they are just like animals who just live by instinct. They are only following which instinct? Not a godly instinct. They are following a fleshly, man-centered instinct where the teacher, the false teacher, is the center of everything that they are doing. Use people, they will say things and they will do things for their own benefit, but not for the benefit of others. Now, is there a biblical example of this? Is there a biblical example of a human being acting like an animal? Well, there is. And you go all the way back to Daniel chapter 4. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it to you and listen to this. Nebuchadnezzar one day stepped out on his palace, and he thought he was the most powerful man of the world in his generation. He was the king of Babylon. Babylon had conquered the Greeks. And here's Nebuchadnezzar. He steps out, and this is what he says. He says, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And the Scripture says, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from, from heaven that said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. Listen to what the voice says. And you're going to be driven from among men, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. You're not going to live in the palace anymore. You're going to go live out in the field. Well, what was his life going to be out like in the field? Well, this is what it says. You shall be made to eat grass like the ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew so long on his body that it looks like, Daniel writes, eagle's feathers. And his nails grew so hard that they looked like bird's claws. And for seven years, that was the life of old great mighty Nebuchadnezzar. So here Peter is echoing back, I think, to this and giving a picture about false teachers who make much of their majesty and their greatness, and God says, no, I'm not going to tolerate that. And so he made Nebuchadnezzar be instinctive like an animal, and here is this great mighty king who had conquered the Greeks out in the field eating grass like a wild ox. So Peter says, listen, false teachers are this way, and they are around in the church today. They are like instinctive animals following their own nature, their own sinful nature, and their purpose is to be caught and destroyed. Now Mark and I get to experience this from time to time out here. While this area is for a little bit longer country and we're not surrounded by this, and I know the blocks probably see this as well, but we see buzzards flying around from time to time over in this field over here, and we know immediately that something out there is dead. And whatever's out there is going to become the food of the buzzards or it's going to become the food of something in there. And Peter is saying this. The, this is how drastic and serious false teaching is. Peter says false teachers, the only good for them is to be caught like a wild animal and to be eaten and destroyed. They're, no longer, they're not good for anything. They are destructive to the church. And so I think this description in verse 12, the first part here, about the irrational nature of false teachers and the instinctive nature that they follow their own sinful desires and their own glory is not written about a believer who is, uh, is been born again, but has strayed away. I think this is somebody who's been around the church, kind of got excited about things, had some gifts, some leadership gifts, were leading things, but they have wholesale walked away from it and denied it and had created something new, and they are teaching. They're not following the Spirit. They're following their flesh. And so these teachers are interested in their self-preservation, their self-propagation of lifting themselves up, and self-gratification, and these are not believers in Christ. And so Peter says here, listen, let me give you another description. They are irrational and instinctive. Secondly, second part of verse 12, he says not only that, but they speak really boldly, and they are ignorant as they speak their blasphemies. They are ignorant in their matters 
of blaspheming. So look at 12 again. He just says in 12, he says, he says, but these like irrational animals, they are creatures of instinct. They are born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, and they will also be destroyed in their own destruction. And the reality of this is true. And just to emphasize it one more time. As you drive down the road and you see a squirrel coming toward the curb, do you ever have conversations in your head with that squirrel? Like, don't, don't, don't. And you get up close and what do they want to do? Okay, I want to dart under the car and see if I can make it through or dart back. Every day we drive somewhere, wherever we go, there's an animal on the road. And, and this is, for me, that's dead, not on the road, but it's dead on the road. And this, for me, is another proof why we are different than the animals. You would think that if they could reason, they would have crossing the street conferences <laughs> to teach one another how to look both ways and cross the street. They continue just to run across the street in front of a car and are killed. Why? Because they can't reason. Now watch what Peter is doing here. These false teachers proclaiming things about the truth of God's word, proclaiming things about Jesus that are not true, but they're claiming them to be true, and they have made up things. And they sound intelligent, and they are authoritative. It is slick. It is powerful to listen to, and people get caught up in it. Peter says they're actually ignorant. They're not smart. They're instinctive animals who don't know anything and they are ignorant in the matters of the things that they are speaking because they are actually speaking blasphemy because they don't know the truth of the real heart of the gospel. And so that's what Peter's heart is. They are speaking with a false authority and they are abusing spiritual matters. And so Peter is just emphasizing for us to know this. These are false teachers are irrational instinctive by nature, and they are ignorant of the things that they are actually speaking about. And they blaspheme the truth of God because they do not understand the gospel. So Peter says, listen, they're ignorant of what they speak about. They bark and revile glories of Christ like a coyote howling at the moon. And it's loud and might be interesting sounding, but it is not authentic and they will be destroyed Peter says like the wild animals so first point instinctive irrational by their ignoring the truth of scripture they are ignorant in their blaspheming just continuing to speak things that are not true and then he says there's going to be a cost to them and that's verse 13 look at the first part of verse 13 they suffer wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, and they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So let's just deal with the first part of verse 13. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. And it's interesting to me, the contrast could not be greater. Peter is affirming that Christ's followers are right in their mind, for they genuinely know God and walk in purity. But false teachers are like instinctive, irrational animals who will suffer rightly for the wrong of the things that they speak and the things that they are encouraging others to participate in. This phrase that Peter uses here means to harm others with an unbridled lust to, to, to bring them in, but they also are pursuing that and it, and it brings harm um, not only to them, but also to the name of God and to the testimony of others. And the reality is, is that when you and I step in and we do things, we sow things, we reap things. That's just the reality of life. Here's what Paul said. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, listen, here's what you're going to get. You're going to reap to your flesh and you're going to suffer corruption, Paul says. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. And so Peter is saying, affirming what Paul says, said, listen, there's a destruction that's going to come to those who proclaim things to the church that are false and they're lies. And, and those teachers are going to have things that come to them that God's going to step in and He's going to do something. And they will suffer wrong as the wage, as the earnings for their wrongdoing and what they have done 
to the church. And so sometimes you look around just going, why does God allow these people just to continue to teach and deceive? And, and, and sometimes we might say, God, God, would you not step in and do something? And we, we have to always remember God's timing is so much different than ours. God is going to bring about that. God will do it, and we have to trust Him. The Scripture speaks about that. And every one of us knows this great reality. Um, our choices make this bed that sometimes we have to lay in. And the consequences of the bed that we have to lay in are really brutal and they're difficult. And God is going to bring about, Peter says, consequences to those who teach falsely. William Barclay, early on in his life, was a great theologian. Later in his life, he kind of walked away from uh, some, a lot of the things that he f- affirmed and wrote. And I've got some of his commentaries and, and uh, the ones that he wrote early on before he kind of strayed. They are, they are just fantastic. In writing about this text, he, write, he writes these words about suffering wrong is the wage of the wrongdoing and keeping in mind that you reap what you sow. This is what he says. He says, to put it quite simply and bluntly, the glutton destroys his own appetite, this constant eating. He destroys his own appetite in the end. The drunkard ruins his health. The sensualist eventually destroys their body. And the self-indulgent ruins his own character and his peace of mind. The one who dedicates himself to these things is seeking for pleasure. And for a while he may enjoy what he calls pleasure, but in the end he ruins his health He wrecks his constitution, he destroys his mind and character, and begins the experience of hell while he's still upon the earth. And it's as if God has done this, and he has. He has built in to the world system that you reap what you sow, and particularly within the church. You reap what you sow. Eating McDonald's for every single meal does not turn out well. I think there's a documentary out there about that. Eating falsehood and lies and listening to that and partaking of that is not going to lead to a place of maturity, but it's going to lead over time. If this is the straight and narrow and it's just a little bit over time and over decades, you end up over here. You don't end up here because there's a turning. And so that's why it's critical that Peter's pastoral heart is saying to us this morning, stay with the truth of the scripture. So not only does he say, listen, false teachers are rational and they are instinctive. He says, listen, they are ignorant in matters of their blaspheming. They proclaim things that they think they know about the gospel and they don't know anything about it. And then he says this. Thirdly, he says, inside they're going to reap the des- destruction of what they have sown by their false teaching. God's going to bring about a judgment upon them. Fourthly, he says this about them in the last part of verse 13. Um, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. And he calls, he says this to them, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. And this is very descriptive of what Peter writes here. And so let me just touch on, I think, a, 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 a couple important things here. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now, if you know anything about history, Rome was an immoral place. Um, pedophilia. As a matter of fact, many of the Caesars and emperors took young boys and did despicable things with them. This was rampant throughout the Roman Empire. But even Rome had some rules. Rome wanted that to stay in the nighttime in the darkness. They didn't allow that to be brought out in the daytime. And so Peter, living under the Rome of Nero, the rule of Nero at this particular point in time, who was a awful God-hating, Christian-hating person is saying this, listen, even Rome has some standards that things need to stay in the darkness. But let me tell you about false teachers in the church. They bring things out in the daytime and they don't care who hears it, who sees it, and what's going on. They literally don't care. And so that's the word here. They revel, they play in the daytime they don't keep things in the night to keep it in the darkness, but they bring it out into this and they embrace the sin without the cover of darkness. And there's a natural correlation that always goes with this. Wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. It just They always go together. And we as believers must walk and live as if we live in the light and we know the truth of God's word and communicate our love for him uh, to him and our love of him to others 
And Paul wrote about this. Listen to these words in 1 Thessalonians 5, 7. He says, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And so Peter says, listen, the false teachers in the church, they're just not hiding in some some house down the road bringing other people along and falsely. No, they've stepped into the church and are teaching people in front of everybody and on television and on podcasts, stuff that goes beyond the Scripture. And again, we live in the day because of media where that is just absolutely true. And then Peter says this about them. They are blots and blemishes. In other words, he's saying this. They are deeply, deeply flawed. This is the embodiment of what impurity is in regard to the Scripture that speaks about that. Think about the Old Testament. Could you bring a sacrifice to the temple, a lamb that had blemishes on it? No, you couldn't. So what's what's the language Peter's using here? These false teachers proclaiming the greatness of Christ, they are like a stained animal that you were to bring to bring a sacrifice for sin. That's what they are. They are imperfect. They're not good for a sacrifice to honor God. As a matter of fact, what they do dishonors God. And so it's very graphic language. And a blemish is something that is the damage that is left behind by the staining of the spot. Do you have a, do you have a place in your house, a piece of carpet where something's been spilled on it and you've worked on it and you worked on it and you worked on it and what? It's just there. You can't get it. The only way to fix that is to buy a new carpet. There has to be a change. And this is what Peter's saying here. This false teaching that is going on in the American church today is a blemish and a stain. It is ungodly. It is not worth anything except to be ultimately destroyed. And God will bring his judgment on it. Lepers. Remember the reality of lepers? Could they hang out in the market and shop? No, they couldn't. They were cast away. Why? Because they could infect other others. And so... Back in the day, they lived in leper colonies. And it was sad. It wasn't their fault. If you caught leprosy, sometimes it was just something that happened. Um, but there was not um, a cure back in those days about this. And, and Jesus did this great couple, did some great miracles with ten lepers. And, and there were some, some significant things. But occasionally, there were times when a leper was cured. And there were some, some instructions on the law as to what they needed to do. But it's this idea of what he's, I'm not equating false teaching with lepers, but, it, but, but there's a similarity. And what he's saying here is this. Listen, you need to get this, you need to know this. False teaching is a stain and is a mark of something that is horrible upon the church and it needs to be dealt with, it needs to be cast out. It doesn't need to remain. It's cast out and it's put into the place where it needs to be. This idea here... Um, of reveling in their deceptions that Peter talks about here, that they're blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions is a word that means to wear it on your shirt to be bold and just to wear it to make sure that everybody knows what is happening and taking place. And so Peter says, listen, here's the reality. In the church, 30 years after Jesus left, there was all of this crazy stuff that was going on, this false teaching. People were being led away, and it was horrible. It had come out in the, the daytime, and it was making a mockery of Jesus, making a mockery of what he did. And John dealt with this, the Apostle John. He wrote a second letter, and listen to these words that he wrote. This is Second John 9 and 10 and 11. He said, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. So John, again, all of these second and third letters, John, John's really the only one that wrote a third one. But here uh, we know that Paul likely wrote two more letters to Corinthians. That church was so messed up, it needed four letters to kind of straighten out things. It had so many issues. Um, two of them we have, two of them we don't have. But J- John here is saying this, 
There is a set of teachings that have been written under the inspiration of the Spirit that we call the Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament texts. Anybody who steps away from those things, John writes this, they have gone ahead, and they've gone ahead in such a way that, that they are not abiding in the teaching of Christ. And he says this boldly, John says, that teacher does not have God. It doesn't matter how passionate they are, um, how cool they are, how slick it is, and how persuasive they are. That teacher who steps away from historic Christianity and from the teaching of Christ, that teacher does not have God. And he says, whoever abides in the teaching, the teaching that has come to us, John says, has both the Father and the Son. And then he says this, strong counsel. If anybody comes to you and does not bring this teaching, and what he means by this teaching is that we just stay with this. We're not teaching other books. We're just teaching that anybody brings you that you're to teach anything in the church that's outside the written Scripture. If anybody does that and they do not bring this teaching, do not receive that person even in your house or give them a greeting. Don't invite a man. Well, I'm thirsty. Well, if they're teaching and proclaiming things that are unbiblical, John says, well, you don't, and here's why. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And so if you don't think the early church took this seriously and we're battling this for our good today in 2019, we need to listen to the counsel from Peter and from John. And they revel in their deceptions. And then he uses this phrase, while they feast with you. Now, likely this goes to what Jude wrote and also likely goes back to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. Do you remember what the 1 Corinthians, what was happening with them when they were doing the Lord's Supper? The early first century church would have what they called love feasts. Now, let me bring it to 2019. It's called potluck lunch, potluck supper. You know what potluck is, right? Okay, church has those. Everybody brings food, you're bringing a dessert, I'm bringing a casserole, you're bringing a potato dish, I've got the salad, I'm bringing the bread. They would have potluck in the early first century church, and then after potluck, they would take the Lord's Supper. But things had gotten so bad in Corinth, and evidently things had gotten so bad with, the, with this group of churches that Peter is writing to, things had gotten so bad that Jude, Jesus' half-brother, had written that the church was gathering together for their love feast, their potlucks, and they were bringing alcohol along. And before they took the Lord's Supper, everybody, or not everybody, but many people were getting drunk, and then sexual immorality was happening among the church members, and then they would take the Lord's Supper. And that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, you better examine yourself when you approach the Lord's table. And so likely this was happening throughout the first century church. Jude, Paul, and Peter are addressing the same thing to different churches. And so all of this was flowing from false teaching. Look at verse 14. Got a couple more things this morning. Fifthly, they have an insatiable appetite for sin. Verse 14 says, And they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. <clears throat> they have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Let's read that again. Is that not graphic? That is graphic. Listen to what he says. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. Their hearts are trained in greed, accursed children. So this word insatiable for sin means unsatisfied. There were false teachers that had come into the church for the purpose of building themselves up, gaining financial gain, getting sexual favors within the first century church, abusing women, utilizing their role in counseling sessions and a number of things of that nature to get what they wanted. And they could not get enough. And that's this word that Peter uses here means cannot be satisfied. They were constantly on the prowl for in, in the direction of self-pleasure. So let me deal with these phrases that Peter uses. First phrase he used, they have eyes full of adultery. 
It's a very vivid word in the Greek, and it means this, having eyes full of an adulteress. It's the same idea that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it said this, but I'm telling you this, that even if you look at a woman lustfully in your heart, you have committed adultery with her. Listen to what was going on in the first century church. And by the way, um, if you read the newspaper, does anybody read the newspaper anymore? Whatever it is that you read, you will see this from time to time. Sexual immorality by spiritual leadership in the church. And it's devastating to a body when a pastor or children's minister and, or associate pastor or music minister has committed adultery and sexual sin has entered into the church. It is incredibly tragic. And what Peter is saying here and communicating is he's saying this, these false teachers have come into the church and this Greek word that means that they have eyes full of adultery is that they constantly looked at every woman that was coming into the church as a potential sexual conquest. And again, this is 30 years after Jesus has resurrected and ascended. The church is battling these major, major things. And sadly, adultery is common today among Christians, and the sin of adultery comes with this unbelievable heavy price to pay. And it affects everyone. And from time to time, you'll hear people say, well, you know, kids are tough when families break up or when things happen and and all that kind of stuff. And I just think that's lunacy. I do think kids are tough. But there are some things that kids should not have to go through because of stupid adults who live for themselves and destroy integrity and God-honoring lives and the church and that's why Peter's heart this morning is this. You've got to keep your doctrine right. If you don't keep your doctrine right, you're going to drift. And that slow drift over time is you're going to end up at a place where you're going to wonder, why did I ever even go to church? What's the relevance of this? Because sometimes you can get way over here and you've lost everything that you once had experienced and once were passionate about it and it's just gone. And it comes through unbelief and buying a lie and building things. And so Peter says, listen, these false teachers, they are so insatiable with their eyes full of adultery. And not only that, but they entice unsteady souls. Their aim is to get those who can't find their way. And you go to cults today, cults are full of people who had no direction in life. They were unsteady souls. They were looking for somebody, and somebody came along with this message, and they stepped in. And the thing about cults is it's different than what life point is like as cults, boy, try to leave a cult and they will not let you. You ever, you ever read what it's like to leave a Jehovah's Witnesses? I mean, boy, they are brutal on, on you if you leave the Jehovah's Witnesses. If you try to speak against Christian science, boy, they are brutal against those who step away from Christian science. And we're, our heart breaks for the reality of those who walk away from God and walk away from the church, but there is a loving reality that if you've walked away, I would say to you today, you can come back. There's a prodigal son story that's pretty amazing in Luke 15, where there's a father waiting on a porch for people who have drifted and ended up over here in a distant land, who remember that it used to be good back here. And you can come back, and that father is waiting on a porch, and he doesn't yell down the road, Told ya! He runs to where you are and he embraces you and he puts a robe on you and he puts shoes on your feet and he puts a ring, the insignia ring, the family crest ring and said, my child who is lost is found. So if you've drifted and you're living in a distant place of false doctrine, I want to say to you, come back. He describes them as well as they are accomplished in They have their hearts trained in greed. The Greek word for trained in greed is the word gymnasium. What happens in a gymnasium? Exercise, right? Hopefully. (laughs) Getting stronger. He says as false teachers are so into themselves and so want sexual pleasure, so want the pleasure of being lifted up, they so want monetary pleasure, possession pleasure. They have trained their hearts. They have gone to the gym And their greatest thing is to manipulate people. 
and manipulate them to walk away from the truth of God's word. False teachers are equipped, but not for ministry, but for selfish gain. And it is rampant today. I think preaching truth is seldom profitable for the preacher in this life, but I think preaching error pays off pretty well in this life because false teachers get really rich manipulating on people. Well, what does Peter think of them? He says, well, I got, I got two-word sentence I want to write. Accursed children. God's children are blessed. They're not cursed. So this word children here is not talking about authentic believers. It's talking about children who've been made in the image of God and by God. He's saying this about false teachers. They are cursed and they are damned because they're not about the truth of God's word. And so this literally means children of cursing in the Greek. And it's implying that despite their religious facade and looking right, they remain under the curse of sin and death and under God's wrath. And all false teachers have coming to them is their judgment and a destruction to look forward to unless they repent. And false teachers, the great tragedy is, is they erode God's standard of holiness. Now, I want to just talk about two words for a moment before we look at the last thing this morning. And I want to talk about the word heresy, and I want to talk about the word heretic. Um, Paul's using a word here um, in just a second. Um, it's in the Greek, it's called apostasia. We get to where we get the word an apostate or apostasy. And, and a, a apostasy is this, is, is, let me just use the scripture here for a moment to illustrate this. This is what we are to know about God and how to live our life, how to do church, how to do family, whatever the case may be. It's a set of standards that has come to us from the Scripture. An apostate is someone who once affirms all of this, but walks away from it, and then begins to teach and preach something, maybe using some of that language, but it's not that, it's about themselves. And so an apostate is someone who once was a part of the church but has walked away from the set of beliefs and has walked away into something different. So that's what an apostate is. That's what apostasy is. And then there's two words called heresy and a heretic. And I want to talk about those just for a moment because um, sometimes they sadly get thrown around um, in the wrong kind of way. But, but uh, a heresy is a belief. Um, in something that is not taught in Scripture, and it's called a heresy. And so it's something that's a belief that's not there, and somebody's added something, somebody's Second John 9, somebody's gone beyond what is there, the teachings of Christ, and they've gone beyond it. That is a heresy. So that would be anything that I mentioned. That would be Jehovah's Witnesses. That would be uh, things connected with uh, Mormonism. That would be things that are, that are connected with the Unification Church and Christian science, things that have gone beyond its teaching. So a heresy is something that's not there. Now, if someone holds a heresy and a Christian brother comes along and says, Hey, brother, I love you. I heard you say this. I heard you teach this. I heard you, um, heard you ask this or whatever the case may be. And, uh, hey, um, can we talk about that for a moment, and, and let's discuss that. And so there's a looking at that, and then that person says, oh, man, what you're saying. And I've been wrong in my understanding of that, and so I want to move away from that and move more in line with biblical teaching. And so that is a moving away from a heresy. A heretic is someone who has somebody who comes to them and says, hey, this is wrong. Well, I don't care. I'm going to continue to hold my belief. Well, that person becomes a heretic and Second John 9 and 10 or apply to that don't have anything to do with a person like that. So occasionally, my I don't know why, they don't ever come to my house. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons never knock on my door. I don't know why. I guess they, they don't like my door. I don't know what the deal is. But they never, they may knock on your door. It's okay to engage them with the gospel. But you need to be really careful as you do. If you're not prepared for that, I, would, I just would encourage you 
to not engage. Because if they can manipulate you with Scripture and cause you to do things because you're not settled in your belief about some things, I don't think you need to have that conversation. And so um, I, think, I think we just have to be really wise about some of these things. And when we're equipped and we understand these things, then engage in conversations. Because we want those people to come into the kingdom, do we not? We do. We don't want them to live that way and stay that way. But we want to bring them uh, into the faith. Let's close with this. Then in verse 15, he says, in 16, he says, They have forsaken the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Last thing I want to say this morning is this, is that false teachers have an innate nature to go astray, to continue to walk away, to step away into apostasy, and to become an apostate, to walk away from these set of beliefs. And I think it's really creative of Peter, even though the Spirit did it, to use this illustration. Do you all remember Balaam in the Old Testament? I don't know if you remember it. Um, in the first service, we read it. I'm just going to tell the story. But it's found in Numbers chapter 22, all the way uh, through chapter 31 of Numbers. But let me tell you the story. The main heart of the story is found in Numbers chapter 22. So Moses has led the people out of Egypt. They're wandering around in the wilderness. They came to this place in this area. There's a king there. He had heard what had happened, that, that had happened to the Amorites. And this king came along, and he sees all of this group of people probably a million plus in the wilderness, and they are by his city. And he's like, oh no, they're going to do to me and my people and my kingdom what they did to the Amorites. So he sends word to this prophet of God whose name was Balaam, to Balaam to come and curse Israel. So King Balak sends some of his people, watch this, with money to go to Balaam, the prophet of God. They they give him money and they say this, hey, there's a group of people that did this thing to the Amorites that are outside of our place. Our king wants you to come and curse them. So Balaam takes the money for divination it speaks about there. They had brought money for divination that he would seek special spirits to do something to bring a curse upon Israel. So he takes the money, he goes to God, and God says, nope. You're not cursing those people. Those people are blessed. They are my people. So he goes back to people who came and says, Hey, go back to your king. Go back to your king. Um, God's not going to allow me to curse these people. Guess what he kept? The money. So they go back, and, ba- and Balak, King Balak's like, What? So he sends more prominent people in the kingdom and sends them back. And when they get there, and the Im- indication there is later on, in numbers that they brought more money. They give him the money. He says, okay, I'll, it doesn't say that he gave him the money, but the indication there is they brought more stuff. He says, okay, I'll go talk to God. What, he, what should he have told them? Has God not already spoken to him? What is he going to do? Was I gonna, what are you going to curse Israel? But he took more, and then he went to God, and God said, No. So then they're like, okay, you wanna, will you come with us? And God allows him to go that way, but kind of doesn't really want him to go, and he goes, and he gets on his donkey, and I don't know what it looks like to ride a donkey. I've never ridden a donkey before, but he gets on the donkey, and he's riding along, and the donkey turns like this and goes into a field because it sees an angel with a sword out in front of it. Balaam gets off and with a stick, just hits his donkey. Gets back on the donkey. They're riding down the road. Angel with the sword is in the road. The donkey is fearful and goes over to the side of this narrow thing and presses Balaam's leg against the rocks and is scraping. He gets off and he takes a stick and he beats the donkey again. Gets back on. He's riding the donkey and it's a real narrow place where the angel of the Lord is there with a sword, and the donkey's like, okay, I can't turn to the right, I can't turn to the left. So the donkey just sits down. Balaam gets up and whips the donkey. And then, fascinating, fascinating 
fascinating. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you? That you have struck me these three times. And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, then I would kill you. Can I stop there for a moment? Do you see how far gone the prophet of God is? He thinks it's normal to talk to donkeys. That this is normal. He's greedy, headed to King Balak, likely wanting more. Maybe God will change his mind. If I ask God enough, even though God said he's not going to do something, if I ask him enough, God will relent. Well, there's a parable about that that Jesus gave, but it's completely different meaning of that. And so here's, he is, verse 30 says, And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey in which you've ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. And then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with a drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down, and he fell on his face. Balaam was so far gone in the midst of the lies and the madness that it took the speaking of a donkey, Peter writes, to restrain the prophet's madness. That's the way of Balaam. What is the way of Balaam? The way of Balaam is this. For the sake of greed, he was willing to go contrary to what God had told him to do that he had heard from the very mouth of God and was willing to do whatever he could do to curse the people. Now, let me close with this. Is that how it ended? Well, there were a number of things you can read in 23 and 24 and 25 and 26, all of these sacrifices and all of these things, but... Eventually what happened was this, is that God never would allow Balaam to curse Israel. But what he did tell Balak was this, you want to destroy Israel? Let the men come into town and eat with your women, and then they will start sacrificing to your gods, and then they will start having sex with the women that they're eating with and sacrificing to the gods. And in Numbers chapter 25, that's exactly what happened. And this great plague comes out where multi-thousands multi of people are killed. And one of the Israelite men brings this woman from the town inside and brings her into his tent in front of everybody. Moses and Joshua and all the people are weeping before the tent of meeting where God would come down and they're weeping saying this plague had broken out and they're crying out to God in Numbers 25. God, do something about this. God, do something about this. And this man, watch this. This is what Peter's been talking about. Reveling in the daylight and their sin and their false teaching brings a woman from the town into his tent is in the tent having sex with her. A guy named Phineas. I love Phineas. He's my favorite Old Testament character. Sees this, takes a spear, goes into the tent and drives it through both the man and the woman as they are doing what they should not be doing. And as soon as he does that, God stops the plague among the people. And eventually God says in Numbers 25 that Phineas' zealousness for the honor of God's name rose to the level of God's passion for the honor of his name. He's the only person in the Old Testament that's said about. It's not said about David. It's not said about Joshua. It's said about Phineas. That his passion for the honor and the integrity of God rose to the level of what God had for his name. Well, in Numbers chapter 31 and verse 8 and verse 16... Verse 8, Balaam is killed by the sword. So this destruction that Peter talks about with false teachers, it comes. And in Numbers 31, 16, it tells us this, that, that Balaam eventually told King Balak what happened in Numbers 25. If you'll do this, then you will see. Watch this. Watch. This is what's happening in our country. I'm not fearful of China, even though China's powerful. I'm not fearful of North Korea. I'm fearful of American sinful hearts. That's what I'm fearful of. Because we're going to crumble from within before any outside place is going to bring destruction upon us. And that's why God calls the church 
to walk in truth and to not stray with whatever's the latest thing. We stay with the ancient path and you'll find rest for your souls, Jeremiah says in chapter 6, if you'll stay on the ancient path. So are you with me? So Peter's passionate heart has been once again 2,000 years later, communicated in this room to say this, I love God's people and God's people have to stand on the foundation of truth. Let's pray.